0: My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today we're joined by Sarah Carlson, and this is a real treat. It's another CIA agent. Now, Sarah, I understand you are a targeter. How is that different than other types of agents?
1: So a targeting analyst is really more focused on sort of following the detail rather than the strategic picture. So if, for example, I were going to write an assessment because that's what analysts do, this is really more about writing about like a single person and an assessment on them rather than like an assessment on like a group or a region overall. So it's just Hmm. um, more tactical in nature and less strategic. And the, um, so the director of operations also has targeters and they're targeting officers, whereas I was a targeting analyst. So, you know, they're kind of similar. It's just the the intent behind what we're looking at. So one is definitely done for, like, finished production, which was me. So I'm looking at things and people to write an assessment about, whereas on the operation side, they're looking at um, specific things and people to um, conduct an operation.
0: So... They would maybe work with special forces and that type. Is it similar to painting targets like they do with special forces, the targeting Um, officer side?
1: Not even that. It could also be, you know, like recruiting an asset and helping identify like who might be a good candidate for that, that kind of thing. So it's just more operational in focus rather than analytic, but there is, it's the, the work itself is pretty similar. So targeting, I actually went back and forth a little bit and, did some rotations with the director of operations where I also did targeting for them. So it's just the sort of the final product or intent behind what we're doing.
0: Okay. I re- spoke to another agent, um, Tom Picora, in the past. He was a security officer and asked him about it. And he said that the targeting aspect is something relatively recent that I think he said that around Bosnia, they started to get a little bit better about the, intelligence like everybody could tell what somebody had for breakfast but it was a matter of what to do with it and that the focus of the targeting side was to become more specific or actionable would that be a fair statement
1: yes absolutely so it's exactly what you said and like if we know like what job everybody is doing well what what are the jobs we care about that kind of thing like what's the job that gives you access to the information that we need
0: okay one thing that really surprised me is in listening to you in a lot of interviews, you had mentioned using social media a few times. Can you go into that a little? I imagine that that's not a, a trade seeker since it's kind of public information by its face.
1: No, um, we. I actually relied on social media quite a lot, especially in Libya. And part of the reason for that is that a lot of the Libyan groups used it to write about their plans and intentions. So, you know, like the CIA is as an organization organization is built to, um, collect secrets, you know, it's the covert, the covert information. So, um, all of that was public. So it's not something that we would put in like an intelligence report. So I was looking at social media to find all the public information, which was readily available. So I was putting together, um, reports. So it wasn't solely based on that. There was other information as well and intelligence, But um, using that as a way to really get that more tactical level information on what was happening. So I would I'd be looking at like, you know, there's a protest in downtown Tripoli and somebody might be there and be tweeting about it, for example, and showing like you know, the street corner and what it looked like and who was there and why they were protesting. And, and so then that would be information I could share with, like, the security officers who might be driving around the city that they should avoid that street corner.
0: I've had a couple other people go on. Was it literally giving you the ground truth, so to speak?
1: It certainly helped. I mean, I, as an analyst, I was looking at all the information. So putting it all together into, like, the, the threat picture. So I was looking at... Um, the actual intelligence, other information from like media sources, the the local news. I relied on the local news quite a lot, and then the social media. So it was putting it all together. Um, I don't like to rely on just one source of information to make decisions on because that um, could be faulty information. So. It's, you know, putting it together into a whole picture and figuring out what's actually going on.
0: Okay. Were they relatively loose with information? It just seems surprising that it's like, well, let me go check Twitter and see what's going on. Was it just kind of because of a casualness between people you could ascertain between the lines what was going on? Or were they directly saying, oh, I'm going here to do this?
1: Some of it was directly saying so. There was one incident where we were worried about this um, convoy that was reportedly coming from Benghazi and headed towards Tripoli. And I was particularly worried about it because part of that convoy was associated with Ansar al-Sharia, which was the terrorist group that conducted the Benghazi attacks that killed the four Americans. So, you know, it was a great concern if that, if that group was headed towards Tripoli where I was. So I was researching online and, um, part of that convoy, that group I mentioned was Libya shield. And they actually had a Facebook page and they posted video and pictures of themselves driving towards Tripoli. And so, you know, you see something like that. Like I was able to count vehicles and see like, who is the person in charge and then verify that was, you know, like who I thought it was. So yeah, some of it was, they were literally posting like videos and pictures and say, Hey, we're headed to Tripoli to help, you know, liberate it.
0: Wow. That's It that seems completely insane. I have to say. But I were they depending on the language barrier as part of a cover, or I, I, it doesn't make sense.
1: I think it was just they didn't they didn't have anything to hide or any reason to hide it, so they're pretty bold. They might have been relying on the language barrier, but um, I spoke Arabic and could read what they were posting, so the dialect was qu- pretty difficult to understand. So um, I don't know if, how familiar people are, but every. Um, you know, like Arab country has a different dialect and some of them are, um, quite hard to pick up. So is that like an
0: accent here? Like a a really deep South accent versus, um, somebody from New York?
1: Yeah. But it would be like one that's so thick you can, like you don't even realize it's english at first <laughs> like that like pretty strong
0: I, I had that when i was in cuba and they had jamaicans working there and they sound nothing like jamaicans that you see in the movies
1: yeah it would be like um like portuguese as well like it's so different from what you hear in like brazil versus portugal and so different from um you know spanish which is actually really close to but the the way it sounds is so different
0: okay well and that had to be a real challenge for you. So, is at least one main language you didn't have to worry about? Like, I was it Urdu or, um, I forget what, what's spoken in Iran.
1: Oh, um, well, in Libya, it was just Arabic, so, um, that was all okay. I was worried about. Some of the there were some minority groups there that spoke other languages, but that the primary language was Arabic,
0: okay. And I guess it took you what was it you said that it takes a relatively short period of time to get proficient in uh, french or spanish versus arabic like almost uh factors of like five or six
1: yeah it takes just a few months to get to we call it a level three in one of the romance languages but arabic it takes two full years to get to a level three
0: and what is level three
1: it's um it's a scale between zero and five so that's Okay. kind of in the middle. So zero is, you know, like you might be able to say hello and Mm -hmm. a five would be a native speaker. So only a native speaker can be a five. Um, so three was, you know, pretty, pretty proficient. And then I of course focused more on, you know, vocabulary that I might need. So, you know, like I couldn't order a meal at a restaurant, but I could, Mm -hmm. you know, chat with, um, people about, weapons and bombs and that kind of thing.
0: (laughs) Well, you focus more on reading, if I recall, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, So one full year is what I took, and that is supposed to get you to a two, and so I got a two-plus in reading just because I focused so much on that, because I knew as an analyst that I would be more heavily involved in reading and much less in talking, and then also, as you can see, like I'm clearly American, so when people would see me, they (laughs) wanted to also practice their English, so if they spoke any English at all, they always preferred to use that.
0: Out of curiosity, how bad or good are these translation tools that we're trying to use? Have you ever oh. compared <laughs> what they spit out to what you actually can read?
1: Yeah, it's, um, they're not, they're getting better. <laughs> um, I think <laughs> like Google translate, I, I tend to on a little bit more, but there are other, you know, there are words that have multiple meanings. And so that's when you get really messed up. So like Molly is a country, but it also is related to money and finance. And so um, if it was like a headline or a sentence with that word in it, then it might translate it as one or the other of those rather than
0: um, Mm, the correct
1: one. So, you know, stuff like that.
0: So it could be helpful to you, but it's not necessarily perfect.
1: Definitely can't rely on it. But I mean, another good example is like Al Qaeda is the base. So like if Mm -hmm. you were talking about a literal base, like at the Air Force base, then... (laughs) Oh. <laughs> and it would make sense to um, translate it. But, um, you know, when it's talking about the group, you don't actually want to call it the base. You know what I mean? It's just um, mm. you have to pay attention to like proper nouns in particular.
0: Since I'm slow and I really don't know a lot about what was going on with Libby. You, you named the one group who attacked in Benghazi. Can you describe... Generally speaking, without revealing secrets, what was going on there?
1: Yes. (laughs) That's such a big question.
0: Well, we'll start with (laughs) uh, I guess they went into a civil war and Gaddafi died. One question I have is, why did we let him die? I don't know if that's something that you looked into, but it seems like he was playing ball and things spiraled out of control after that.
1: Well, um, so the U S supported NATO in, in the intervention. So we were um, heavily involved in his removal. And then, you know, I think he was being pretty cooperative, but I think with the Arab, Arab spring, that kind of changed the tide and, and U S foreign policy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't, you know, I don't know why they, the, it was the Obama administration at the time. I don't, no, all the ins and outs of why they decided to help with the intervention or to lead it but they they did
0: okay and so so but you can speak to after that because i figure you what you were dealing with was after his death yep. the country is unstable would that be a fair statement
1: yeah um you know he was a dictator so he's very controlling and he maintained um law and order through any means necessary and so when he was removed that left the country pretty lawless. So the terrorists, um, I think he had been pretty well isolated out in the East in Derna, and, and to a lesser extent, Benghazi at the time when he was, when he was there or forced out of the country. So a lot of them went to, you know um, elsewhere in Africa or to mm. fight in Afghanistan. And so, you know, once he was removed, then that took away a lot of the law and order. And so a lot of the groups kind of felt like they had autonomy to, to expand and to start training again. And so Ansar al-Sharia was the main terrorist group that I was looking at, but then there were also the militias and then there were all, all the shades of gray in between, you know, like a militia and a terrorist group. And I think um, so much is done in Libya based on personal relationships. So one guy, yeah. Might have grown up with his buddy and one is in a militia and one was in a terrorist group, but they still work together because they know each other. So there there was a lot of gray area in that regard. Tribal? Yeah, um, very much so. There were many different tribes and then the tribes had the militias. And so the militias were actually more loyal to the tribes than to the government. So when the Libyan government um, started to reform, um, they were there was a Congress and then there was a president and prime minister, but they didn't really have the authority of the pe- people, you know, they weren't elected. And so it was, um, an interim government that was set up. And then as, how, a, how was
0: the government set up? If you don't mind my asking, you said that they weren't from the people who put them there. Was it NATO gosh, installed? Or? I, I
1: believe NATO or the UN. I honestly don't okay. know. Um, I just can't recall right now. I should That's know fine. that. Um, But it was an interim government, and so they, the people as the year went on and the government tried to extend their mandate, they grew more upset that they wanted to have, um, you know, a democratically elected government. And, um, the, the interim government had brought in the militias wholesale, and so they didn't, um, integrate them into like, Units So, like, a militia became a unit instead of part oh. of, um, the, like, a larger military. And so that created a lot of problems as well.
0: Dual loyalties then. So you had the militia supposedly working for the government, but at the same time they had their homies, so yeah. to speak?
1: and really ultimately loyal to their tribe.
0: Mm. Okay. Out of curiosity, was the government founded by some people who had already been in the government before? And I bring this up as a comparison because after Iraq and Saddam fell, the Ba'athist regime was pretty much pushed out. And I think there were some problems in there because we said, nope, sorry, you were Ba'athist. You can't have a job. You can't work there anymore. And so a lot of the knowledge, shall we say, was lost. Was that the same situation or was there a different situation there?
1: It was sort of similar in that there were people that, were like part of his family or that were quite um, close to Gaddafi that were forced out. Um, Mm -hmm. they fled the country or were put in prison. And it was actually a lot of the people who had fled under Gaddafi that came back to be part of the government, but they, a lot of them did have prior experience. So it wasn't quite the same as what we saw in Iraq, but similar ish. Um, so then the trouble, like the dueling governments that I think people Mm -hmm. hear about now that really started, um, after, after I left so that, um, the people had an election. So there was an election in June of 2014 and, um, rather than create a new government, it ended up creating two governments. And that one was, um, sort of forced to flee to Eastern Libya and then sort of align more with Khalifa Haftar and Operation Dignity. And then the other one stayed. And then for a while, you know, there's like a third government um so it just um there was a, a huge power vacuum that was created when qaddafi was killed and then it was exacerbated again when all the foreign um embassies and missions left
0: so it's a failed state
1: i well i think so yeah <laughs> yeah
0: and i i'm guessing let me see i think somalia is still considered a failed state um the area doesn't seem stable it seems like um it may be in worse shape than even in the early oddies.
1: Yeah. It's, um, it's still, there's still a lot of fighting going on in Libya. I don't follow the news, um, as closely, like not even (laughs) remotely as closely as I used to, um, Libyan, um, developments. I still obviously follow other news. Um, -hmm. so yeah, there was for a while, you know, a, a huge immigration problem with, um, people trying to cross the Mediterranean and people were, Dying like hundreds, hundreds of people um, dying every year on the med trying to flee through Libya because there was, you know, really no one to stop them. And then the militias got involved and were are trying to stop them. And then we saw things like there were, you know, sex trafficking and slave trade and stuff like that. So yeah, it, I was
0: going to say, I heard there were actual state slave markets going on there. Is that true?
1: Yeah, it was horrifying. Yeah, that that happened after I left and. You know, I was following it, trying to follow it for a while, but um, you know, I'll still post about it once in a while on social media. But I, you know, I can't stay that involved with with that anymore.
0: Well, you want to keep your sanity.
1: Mental health is important.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, what, I mean, what happened? And I, I don't want to, you know, get into gruesome details, but wh- what happened during your time? Because it seems like. You were studying to go to Libya. Benghazi happened while you were studying. Mm -hmm. And then when you got there, we were kind of on pins and needles and things got worse. Can you paint a picture?
1: Yes. So I mentioned um, very briefly that there were sort of these dueling governments and it really Mm -hmm. kind of started um, with a bunch of different sides. So it wasn't two sides. It was um, many militias, many tribes and so as an analyst, I was looking at them to see like who who had the most power, like who did we need to worry about. And um, like there were definitely deepening divides, and then as those divides deepened throughout the year, I started to see sort of two sides forming and that that was much more problematic because throughout the year, you know, like if if one tribe or militia tried to take power, they they might be able to take it, but they couldn't hold it. They couldn't like establish a government and try to maintain control of the entire country. They might be able to control like a block or something like that. So Mm -hmm. as the divide deepened and like these two different sides were forming, they started to gain a lot of um, power, a lot of people, um, a lot of resources. Um, And so it was really when those two sides started fighting each other that um, it, it got really bad. So that was in July of 2014, and um, they actually called us. So Operation Dawn was the other sort of the other side, and um, you know, they, other side. You mean like there was Operation Dignity going on in okay Eastern Libya with Khalifa Haftar, and then in um, in Tripoli, um, it was Operation Dawn, and it was associated with some of the other tribes and militias we were worried about, and and had mm-hmm. some connections to Ansar al Sharia, so. I was very worried about them. And then they started bombing and they were started by targeting the airport, Tripoli international airport, because that was very much the sort of like a center of gravity or an area of control that they wanted. So they were targeting the Zintan because that was the militia, the tribe that controlled the land that we were on. So the Mm -hmm. um, embassy facilities and, um, so they called to let us know they were going to start the civil war the next morning. Um, which again, like we've talked about it's like
0: courtesy, like
1: posting stuff on social media, right? Like they posted that too, that they were going to target hmm. the airport. And so they did. And that was really what kicked it off. So, you know, they destroyed a bunch of the planes that were there and um, there were hundreds of rockets being fired. So, wow, you know, Gaddafi himself had a lot of stockpiles and like going back to, in history you know they were state sponsor of terrorism for quite a few oh, years yes. and they had that you know like bioweapons program and everything so locker
0: b um yep
1: yeah so there was the country was flush with weapons and um rockets and so once they started firing them it really became apparent that there there really wouldn't be an end to their supply anytime soon so they were firing you know, hundreds of rockets a day. Um, there was a lot of small arms fire as they were sort of engaged. Was it a lot
0: of noise? I'm, I'm curious about something. Uh, was there a lot of noise? Like, you know, my only reference is movies. And I was in the Army, and I know a lot of a lot of it is just pure boredom. I'm guessing that you weren't spending every day with rockets flying overhead continuously. It was probably patches, or so was it every day?
1: Throughout the year, it was patches. And it was increasing as the year progressed. So the first rocket attack was in April, and then there was one other in May. And then in July, when the fighting really kicked off, it was every day Mm. after that.
0: And what were the people doing? We don't tend to ask, but what about the Libyan citizens? What what was their life and situation like? Were they on the side watching, or were they for cover. What was life like for them?
1: I think um, most that I knew or was aware of were just trying to sort of keep their head down and, and keep living their life as best they could. I think um, the people were quite frustrated because this came, you know, years after Gaddafi died. So, and now it's been, gosh, that was 2011. So it's been yeah. you know, nine years that um, they've been living in this situation and, I mean, you could still see like from, from the intervention, from the revolution, there were like bombed out buildings everywhere and, um, you know, bullet holes in the buildings. And so it was, it was not nice living conditions. And then as the different groups were trying to, you know, do power grabs, the people were getting caught in the middle. So it was everything down to like neighborhood militias trying to maintain control of their neighborhood and sort of their law was the law because they lived in that neighborhood. So, you know, depending where you lived, it could be quite difficult. And there were other things that happened where like one, um, one of the minority groups shut down the man-made river, which is something that Gaddafi had built. And so, um, they were doing it again as like a control power, um, grab. And, Mm -hmm. The, the result was that it shut off water to Tripoli. So there were, you know, long gas lines. There was no electricity. There was... Um,
0: how do people eat? You see, I'm, I'm just, you know, it's hard to imagine. I mean, we are... Well, I'll speak for myself, fat, dumb, and happy. But how did the people actually get food on the table for their family? How did they work? Did they have jobs? I mean, what what was it like?
1: I think there were still trying as much as they could. And we were bringing it. So USAID was pretty active there. And a lot of the, the foreign governments were, you know, providing assistance as much as possible. People so were we bring
0: food into them.
1: People were still, um, you know, going, going through the motions of, of daily life. So you could still go to the market and get food. Restaurants were still open most of the year. You could go to, you know, coffee house on the Mediterranean and sit and have a okay. cappuccino. Um, and that was most of the year that I was there. But then, you know, I, d- I don't know what it's been like since that Civil War really started in 2014 and, and how bad it's gotten. Mm. So I think it's a a very difficult living situation.
0: It's a shame. So now up on up till the last day, essentially, you said they announced to you, oh, by the way, tomorrow's the Civil War. Uh, better do something. What happened?
1: <laughs> so they called in. They wanted to let it, the reason was they didn't want us to think they were attacking us. They were letting us know it was going to be the airport. It's just that we happened to be close and anybody. Okay. So
0: they were careful. They weren't suicidal.
1: No, uh, but you know, aim wasn't great. So we definitely <laughs> got, got hit with stuff. Um, it was like indirect fire, which is like the worst term because it's, it's direct, you know, they, they might not mean to aim sure. it at you, but it still hits you. Um, Luckily, we didn't get hit with any of the, the larger Grad rockets, but we were hit with like mortars and anti aircraft artillery. So, um, that it started, we were there. So then we were there two weeks during that heavy, heavy fighting. And, um, there were other things.
0: What was that like?
1: It was very scary. Yeah. Um,
0: I mean, did you like sleep in a bunker? Did you? You know, make sure there was barriers. I'm, I'm just curious what it was like.
1: Yeah, so um, on the on the compound where I lived, uh, there were a couple different villas, and then like the main one, which had the office, the top, the main one. The there were Marines there, and they had a 50 cal, and it was like pointed right down the street, and that was in direct response to what happened in Benghazi. So it was sort of direct line to the front gate. So if if somebody attacked the front gate and was able to reach that gate, then they would be there to, to stop them with a 50 cow. Um, and then there were villas on either side. So I lived in one of the villas and, you know, had a bedroom in the center of each was a staircase. And, um, I think construction is very different in North Africa. So the buildings are like rebar and, um, concrete, like really. So like Thick walls. So in the center is the stairwell, so it's even more protection. So we used the um, stairwells as a bunker. Um, yeah. If it was hit by a rocket, um, we would have died. There's really not yeah. a defense against those um, larger rockets that were coming in. But it stopped the smaller stuff. So we just put um, like sandbags up one side and then sort of sat huddled back there um, during some of the heaviest fire. The problem was that we knew, like, so you said, you know, it doesn't, it's not constant. Eventually it stops. So right. like the first day we were waiting, cause that's normal. It, like it usually comes in waves or it stops and it, it didn't stop. And so mm. at that point, you know, I knew I needed to get into the office because I needed to, um, communicate with CIA headquarters. Cause you know, that happened, Sorry, like five thirty in the morning in Libya, so eventually Washington was gonna wake up and um, you know, see what was going on. What was the
0: time difference? Uh fourteen hours about?
1: Oh, I don't remember. I think it was more like nine.
0: Oh that's right. No, eight. My friend's in Cape Town, or so nine. yeah, it's like eight or nine.
1: Okay. Yeah, so I we had to go into the office, so we eventually had to come up with a way to to move around. So we couldn't um we couldn't move alone. We always had to have a buddy with us in case we were hit. Were you in
0: open air to get to the office or mm-hmm. did you find a, okay. Wow. Nope.
1: Just walk outside. And so that was sort of when the scariest moments um, of my life is that, you know, taking that first step out into a bombing campaign, you could like see it and hear it and feel it. Um, it, it was truly very scary. And then, you know, having to walk all the way to the office. So it wasn't a long distance, but long enough. <laughs> yeah, felt <feeling> it. <laughs> felt every step. Um, so yeah, that was. Um how, how
0: did you cope? I mean, with that, or did you just focus so much on, I have this mission and I've got to get there, kind of distract yourself with momentum?
1: Yeah, I think that people who were able to handle it better were the ones who were really busy. And so I was very, very busy. And um I think that was the only way I was really able to deal with it. But then, you know, it's called post traumatic stress for a reason. Right. As well. So right. that eventually, um, it it came back to me and I had to um sort of figure it out and and go through the process of healing. But Does it still? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like Fourth of July is horrible. <laughs> I was literally like I had uh, earplugs in and then I had noise canceling headphones on and I had like my music all the way up as loud as it would go sort of, um, huddled in a corner. Um, you know, it's still really bad. And
0: are you getting help for it? I mean, is the government helping anyway?
1: I, they don't anymore. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I still, I, I go to counseling. Like I, I think it's really important and I think, you know, it's sad that there's, still stigma around PTSD and that people feel like they can't get help. And I don't like, I don't agree with that at all. And I have no problem talking about it. Like if anybody is struggling, they should absolutely go see someone talk about it. Um, I don't think it makes sense in any way for somebody to go through that and come out being like, Oh yeah, I'm totally fine. Like. (laughs) no, you're not fine. There's, Unless you're
0: a psychopath.
1: Right. You're <laughs> like two stuck two weeks in a bombing campaign. And it's one thing to say in the moment, you know, like, Oh, it's no big deal. I'm not scared, which is a complete lie. <laughs> but you know, that's how you cope with it to get through it. But at some point you, you, you have to face what happened and, and there are ghosts that, that always come back. And the fireworks are particularly hard because it's, it's not so much this sound. It's, um, like the concussion of, of the really big ones. And, and there's nothing else quite like it. And so there's really no way to um, sort of handle that or deal with that until, until you're going through it. But every year it gets wow. a little better.
0: Wow. Well, hopefully someday you'll be able to enjoy a show or, or, or casually get in. And I was thinking that early when you said feel, because the, the concussion aspect is probably to me the most intense where you don't feel um, stable to the earth, which is the one thing you should be able to count on.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, there's one point that we were, um, so I was in the office and there was so much, um, so many rockets coming in and so much weapons fire. Like I remember I was standing at the table upstairs and you could see like it was a wall of windows and they were like literally like warping in and out. Um, Oh and God. just over and over and like all the dishes and stuff were shaking and rattling and like everything was moving. Like you would, you could feel it in a totally different way. And then the smell as well. So I think the that cordite smell. Yeah. That from the, um, like fireworks have it oh. too. That um, I'm totally sure. blanking on the name, but, but it's a very unique smell. And it, it really sure. only comes at those times.
0: Now, during all this, were you sitting there saying, uh, yo, uh, are we going to leave here? Are we going to leave? What's going on? Are we going to leave? Are we going to leave? Or what was the status?
1: No, um, I, I wasn't. And part of that was also my coping mechanism. Like, okay, I can't focus on that. Like, we were talking about evacuation routes, but the ambassador at first was saying, like, you know, we're going to stay the course. We can't lose Libya. We can't fail. We have to do this. We have to get through it. And so... Um, yeah, you know, I couldn't think about it as like, oh, we're definitely going to evacuate. I had to think about like, how do we, how do we get through this? How do we hmm. identify the threats and, and make sure that, you know, I keep everybody as safe as possible through the information that I can gather. And so um, it was, it wasn't um the first choice. And so then we were looking at other things like, well, maybe we fall back to another location and consolidate like how long can we shelter in place? Like how much, not how much can we take, but like literally how long <laughs> is the food and water going to last? Cause we couldn't get more.
0: It was a siege kind of. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There was no way to have somebody bring in more. There was no way to um, go out and get more. And so it was literally like as long as our food and water would last. And then there was the other issue of like medical evacuation. So, if somebody were hurt which was a high probability in sure. a bombing campaign then um we would need to be able to evacuate them and so um the hospital that we sort of relied on to take people to was bombed and um some mm. of the doctors were killed pretty early on as well and so you know that was not an option so we were going to have to medevac somebody um if if they were seriously injured and we didn't have a way to do that, and so those were some of the decisions that actually prompted the need to evacuate. And then, um, you know, once the embassy facility started getting more like sustained impacts from that indirect, indirect, direct fire, then um, that's <laughs> when it it really changed.
0: Okay, it's uh, indirect, direct makes me think of like a friendly <laughs> fire, which is not it's so not friendly. friendly. <laughs> yeah, craziness. So then you guys finally decided to evacuate, and it wasn't a straightforward trip out of town, right?
1: No, it was not. Um, So we had looked at a bunch of different routes, and the one we ended up taking was the one the ambassador chose. And so we went sort of south through Libya, and then down and around and came up into southern Tunisia. Um,
0: Hmm.
1: So it was kind of a big dip and then back is
0: tunisia an ally what, what is their status with us
1: um yeah we have our embassy there still and um i think it's a friendly, pretty good relationship with the u.s
0: okay well i was just wondering well i'm guessing it's not bad i don't hear much about them it's like I, i've heard of togo being an ally and i was like togo what's that <laughs> so i know that there's you know the only thing I know about Tunisia is they filmed the uh, first star Wars with uh, Luke Skywalker in there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think I mentioned in the book that I, we were on the convoy out and it was, you know, these many cars all filled with Americans driving through these like tiny little villages in Tunisia. And I was like, it's, it's probably the biggest thing they've seen since star Wars. <laughs> so that's kind of fun to, to see that. And, they were like literally sitting out on their front porches and like waving and it was kind of <laughs> surreal, but cool.
0: That's crazy. Now, when you got to Tunisia, I, I guess you weren't necessarily welcomed by our own place.
1: No, it was um, one of those moments that like I was so angry, so deeply angry, um, <clears throat> you know, we had finally got into tunis and the u.s ambassador to tunisia had decided that um he didn't want any of us to stay and like that's perfectly understandable that that's a lot of extra americans running around in the country but um you know just to have a night's sleep or to get some food um we didn't have that i
0: don't get it why why was that i mean that does seem a little odd i mean was it an image thing that they're?
1: i, d- I like don't know fading force i never heard it heard a good reason for it. Um, zero respect for that man. And, um, it was really quite traumatizing to get there after going through so much and, you know, really, um, helping to save all those lives of all those, um, embassy people. And then to get there and have them say, you know, like you can't stay here. You have to go. Um, and just being so thoroughly exhausted. So I, I did end up staying one night. Um, but of course that was, so we got there like Sunday morning. So it was like eight in the morning, and so it was not not a relaxing <laughs> stay. Um, I think wow. everybody was still so wound up on adrenaline, and um, just sort of slept fitfully. And then, um, like, I had to book my own um, plane ticket to get out of the country. So it was like sitting in the hotel lobby, like trying to get a ticket and um, get out of there. And it was just kind of all surreal and I don't I don't understand the reason for it why they had us leave so quickly why we couldn't stay. But you had to
0: book yourself there there was no government no travel agency or any kind of booking at all. Not for that. <laughs> Not even a military flight? Jeez.
1: No and I think part of the reason that it, it it was so difficult in the aftermath is because we were all forced out so quickly, right? There was no time to really decompress or to talk through what happened. And then I went straight onto my home leave from there Mm -hmm. because I was already past, um, my redeployment or like my return date. And so, um, I actually was the only one that went straight onto leave. And so that was also really hard. Like I, I literally had, you know, nobody I could talk to about it or decompress. And you go through something like that with, those people and you know, become quite close and it's actually been really nice doing the book and some of this stuff that um, a lot of them have reached out to say, you know, thank oh, you good. and, and that kind of thing. So it's helped to reconnect a bit. But I think, um, you know, I, I didn't put it in there as a way to sort of like be petty or besmirch the state department, but it, it really was quite traumatizing to not have that decompression.
0: Oh, I'm sure. I mean, <sighs> I would feel very disappointed if um, or let down because we're sort of on the same team, one would think.
1: Right. And then um, to go through something so traumatic, you know, like one day I was in Libya, like in fear of my life and getting bombed. And like two days later, I was getting off the plane in Washington, D.C. And, you know, everybody's just going about their day and doing their thing and has... No idea, and I feel like probably a lot of people who come back from deployments feel similarly. Like it, it was like being in a weird bubble where nobody really understood. That's
0: interesting because that that was a lesson I think we learned from Vietnam. Because they they brought a lot of soldiers back from Nam. It's like plunk, okay, you're back, and they went through a whole lot. I think they're handling it much better with the military. Maybe the cia and other people are being overlooked
1: yeah i think there's a lot of support system for military but very much less so for former cia sort of an unofficial network so i have been able to connect with people um who are former cia officers but it's been a process to sort of find them and and connect again and I, i don't know why they haven't developed a better program for that um but they haven't, I have been able to connect with some that are specifically for the military. And that's because I have a strong military family and, um, background. So, um, I mentioned sort of at the end of my book, I volunteered with taps, which is the tragedy assistance program for Mm. survivors. So they take care of, um, gold star families and they're always looking for, um, counselors, um, who've had the, sort of war zone and military experience. So I didn't have military, but, um, they let me volunteer. And so I was able to, um, help with them. And, um, you know, there are things like that where I think it's so important also to, to give back and, you know, service is obviously very important to me. So being able to, um, to help others who've been through that, um, that made a huge difference.
0: Well, now you've pivoted back into a new kind of service, kind of, uh, I, I guess you'd say city service or civilian service um, emergency management
1: yes i'm still working for government just very local now um so it's been nice full circle yeah yeah it's been nice to have a um a different focus and uh but still service and like i said it's really important to me so i'm able to um help with all hazards now and like really apply like what is it really like to go through an evacuation and um, how do we plan for that in a city, in a U.S. city? And so that's been um, good and, and interesting and different than intelligence, which I really didn't want to do anymore. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so right now it's it's very much focused on coronavirus and the response to COVID-19.
0: Okay. And are you also having to respond with the other outbreaks that are going on, the protests and things of that sort, or is it primarily coronavirus?
1: For me, it's primarily coronavirus, but emergency management is also responding to um, the protests and riots that have been occurring. Um, so civil disturbance is one of the emergencies that we plan for. And so, um, a lot of that has to do with, um, messaging that's sent. So, um, with emergency management, it's really coordinating the response with police and fire. So, um, emergency managers don't direct anything. We don't tell the people what to do, but we convey the messaging. Mm -hmm. So, um, and help with the planning. And so it's really more about like sending out an alert if, um, if we
0: need to. I have an off-the-wall question on that because you're in a unique circumstance. You've been in what I'd call a war-torn country. I don't know what else to call them. Yeah. And you see what's going on now with the Chaz and the Chop and some of the violence. Now, we're getting media accounts of horrible violence and really bad pictures. But do they even compare in a wit to what you saw in an actual war-torn country?
1: Yes and no. <laughs> um, no, in that um, we d- we don't want the U.S. to become Libya. Um, and anybody who has deployed, I think, would very much second that. Um, it's, it's a horrible way to live. Um, in the CHAZ or CHOP, there have been shootings um, and... Um, a couple of deaths or at least one death, um, but a a few shootings. And so it's not the same as, you know, like getting bombed or like actual force on force, um, fighting, but it's, it's the beginning of something and something that's not good. Um, you know, creating, worry about this. I do. I worry about it a lot. Um, create an autonomous zone and being allowed to do that. um, Like, I was really disappointed in Seattle for allowing them to do that. And it took a lot of the attention away from Black Lives Matter, which, um, like, also really upset me that, you know, they need that attention. And and then they kind of um, hijacked it. And so that was really upsetting to me that they were even allowed to do that.
0: Well, as an analyst, it would almost seem like something you've seen before when you have all those different groups like you saw in Libya I do not think that the violence had anything to do with Black Lives Matter. I think that was agitators who intermingled and yeah. saw an opportunity.
1: Yeah, and um, I honestly, it's more with coronavirus that I see sort of the deepening divide. Um, and, and I think some of the the, pro- the protests, I think, are a separate thing. We've always been, I think, a strong culture for protesting and, and that's part of our constitution mm-hmm. and the right to assembly. And so, um, like the, the protest actually worry me less than sort of this deepening divide over coronavirus and how like mask has become political and, um, the new four letter word. And so when I see such strong, um, opinions on, on polar opposite sides like that, that's the part that actually worries me more um, and that it's become so political and that there is definitely a divide. And, and I, that's the part I worry about.
0: So on this happy note,
1: (laughs) really depressing. (laughs) Sorry.
0: No worries. No worries. The book, if you want to read about happy times in Libya and escaping uh, on the edge of your seat with them, barely it's in the dark of war. And where can people find out more about you?
1: I have a website, so it's my name. So it's www.sarahmcarlson.com. And um, there are links to the book in there. And um, yeah.
0: And also social. I think you're on Instagram and Twitter. and Yep, all, all, the, all the
1: social. So I think I use Twitter the most, but you can also find me on Instagram and um, Facebook. And
0: Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. What Was
1: That Like? might just be the most intriguing podcast you'll ever hear. Each episode is a conversation with a regular person who's been through an extremely
0: unusual situation. Like Jeremy, who was bitten by a rattlesnake. Or Jennifer, who accidentally killed someone. Or Luke, who got caught smuggling cocaine. Real people in unreal situations. Listen and subscribe at WhatWasThatLike.com. I did not grow up with very much money.
1: Money's energy.
0: Money is something that, that really scares me. Yeah, I had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money.
1: My dream was to be the WWE
0: wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money is a tool, it's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm.